Here we go. Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Linder, and you're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Peyton Garland. Peyton Garland is a writer, wannabe rapper, and coffee shop hopper who loves connecting people to a grace much bigger than expected. Her debut book, Not So By Myself, was promoted by former White House Press Secretary Dana Perino and endorsed by TED Talk speaker and creator of the More Love Letters movement, Hannah Brencher. Peyton lives in Colorado Springs with her husband, Josh, and their two gremlin dogs, Alfie and Daisy. Welcome to the podcast, Peyton. Hey, excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. And before we came on, we were talking about your gremlin dogs, Alfie they, they are, and Daisy. They are just cute enough that we keep them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but they can distract your work or, or keep Oh, you- sure. Like they're little tyrants. Like they are definitely tyrants. They're just cute. God knows who to make cute. And that's what he did with Alfie and Daisy. <laughs> that's awesome. Just so people can get to know you, tell us your story, how you started out, how you got to be doing what you're doing now. Sure. So I was your poster child for the Christian school kid population. I went to Christian school, ended up doing Christian university, was in church all my life, knew all the answers, knew which boxes to check, when to smile, when to be quiet. I was a perfectionist and and I was good at it. And that seemed to be my identity for a really long time. And then I hit adulthood and adulthood does not leave a lot of room for perfection And after my husband and I got married, maybe six months into us being married, he decides he wants to be a pilot. So he left a very good job as a sales rep for the Atlanta Falcons football team to pursue this piloting thing. And next thing you know, our financial situation where we're living, everything is turned on its head. And I go from having my best friend home at 5 p.m. every day to him flying overnight, sometimes being gone for weeks and months on end depending on which airport he's at. And so I finally hit a life season that's lonely, that's hard, where I I don't even know which boxes to check. I don't want to smile anymore. I'm not smiling. I get diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder in this season. And I finally have to accept that if perfection isn't attainable, then what is and what's worth chasing after? And so I found so much grace and being vulnerable and just sharing where I was in my life. And perfectionism finally was something I could just step away from. And so my book, Not So By Myself, is that transition from saying, okay, rather than perfection, let's latch on to grace and let's see if we can breathe a little better. Wonderful. So during this time when all of a sudden, you know, you had no husband at home because he was out (laughs) flying around, literally flying around, um, Did you have friends or or family or support where when you were going into those low times, they would help you out? The the crazy thing about it is I'm from a small town in Georgia called LaGrange, Georgia, but we had just moved north of Atlanta three weeks earlier for me to start a new job. And then he finds out he has to be at a different airport for about three months. So I don't know my neighbors. I don't know my coworkers. I'm now far, you know, far enough away from home that I can't just go see my family. I can't swing by for dinner. I am by myself. Now, granted, there was so much support as far as phone calls and texts and, you know, door dashing coffee to me. Like there there was so much care and support, but face to face, there was nothing. There was me and my two terrible dogs. And that was it. 
Somehow I just want to meet these dogs. They, you, know, you, might, you might get your wish. They're napping right now. And we have little pep talks before talks where, hey, mommy needs you to be quiet. But I can't always guarantee it. So, so they might make a debut. But right now they're napping and they look like they might cooperate. Wonderful. So what do you think would have happened if you didn't have your faith through all this? I think, I think I still would have known that perfection was impossible. I think I I would have understood that, but I think what would have happened is grace would have been something that didn't quite latch on as quickly. And I also think that grace wouldn't have been an identity. So for me, my, my faith, again, I grew up in church. I knew all the answers. I knew there was grace. I knew God was good, but I didn't actually believe it. I knew it, but I, I I'd done so well on my own that it wasn't something I had to believe. And so I don't think I ever would have grasped that not only is, is God good, but I'm free to not be perfect. And there's just so much there's so much more growth when you recognize that you can stumble through life and still end up where you're supposed to, not because you've got there on your own and you've got there in the blink of an eye, but you can now, you can sit back and enjoy the process of things and the growth of things. And I don't think without my faith, I would have understood that, nor would I have been to been in a point where I could enter that season and also be gracious to others. There, there was a, there was a give and take of grace that I think was pivotal because of my faith. Mm-hmm. So, you know, beginning of life until this happened, you know, you could easily control everything. Like you said, you knew all the answers, you knew what to do, you know how to even interact with people. But, and, and I've come to this point, and I know a lot of people have come to this point, we come to a point where we just have to surrender. Yeah. We just have to surrender. And sometimes we think we're surrendering, but we're not. I've been in that situation recently. You know, I think, oh yeah, I'm I'm giving you total control, God. But then I go and take stuff back. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think there were, there were tropes for me where where I'd I'd inch towards grace and then I would do really well with something. And I'm like, no, 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 actually, I, I think I did have that put together. I, for me in high school, I was, so I was the valedictorian of my high school class. So I finished top of the list. I I go to college and I'm the only girl in my sorority who is a virgin. So I actually get a nickname called Hanners. Hanners is my maiden name. Hanners with the V card. So like I'm, I'm near worshiped for just being this rare. It was almost just like someone struck gold. Like it's just rare. It doesn't happen. So I'm getting, not only am I, am I performing well, people are turning around and applauding it. And there's this pedestal and I didn't even recognize it, but I was just sitting on it and I was gloating in it. And it took, you know, it took a hard season that was so hard that I had nothing to fall back on and into the surrender for me when it was truly, truly pivotal is when I, I couldn't take anything back. My mental health was gone. My physical health was taking a toll because of my mental health. Spiritually, I was having to figure out why, you know, checking all the boxes wasn't working and the Jesus world anymore. I was turned on my head and I had nothing to fall back on. And I think, I think for someone like me, who's stubborn and who is a recovering perfectionist, I think that's what it took. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I'm just curious, how did you meet your husband? 
Oh, we actually have a, a pretty cute Hallmark story. Um, so I, I had dated a Marine for about three years before I met my husband and there was lots of um, infidelity, lots of verbal abuse. And I, I got very tired and I just, I, I walked away from that. And I took three or four months to just really, to, to kind of enjoy myself, to just be me and to not have to show up as whoever someone else wanted me to be. And I think God used that space to let me kind of rediscover myself. And uh, so I was single and I was happily single. And I had a friend of mine say, hey, are you going to Jake's wedding uh, by yourself? Jake was a coworker of mine. I said, yeah, I'm not going with anybody. And she said, well, you know, the guy who's always sitting at the front desk, the really cute one with the blue eyes, I asked him if he'd go with you. And he said he would. <laughs> and I was like, and I said, what guy with the pretty blue eyes? I don't have a clue who you're talking about. So um, I awkwardly go on this blind date to a wedding with my husband and um, I couldn't get rid of him after that. He stuck around <laughs> and he turned into my best friend and we dated six months. We were engaged six months. Like the day of our wedding, we were like, oh, we've only known each other for like a year. This is, I don't know how wise this is, but um, so yeah, a, a blind date to a wedding and he was quite the dance partner and he, he was just, he was wonderful. We definitely have a memorable first time we met. That is awesome. Yeah. And then the two dogs came. And then- uh, one of them, one of them we adopted, like one was intentional because when he was working for the Falcons during football season, he'd work really late. And I just didn't like staying by myself when it was dark. Um, so we got Alfie. And about four or five months later, Daisy just shows up on the doorstep. She's one of those dogs where it truly was a rescue experience. Um, and we think she was abused. She wouldn't let Josh get near her for about three months. She, she would wet herself if he even looked at her. And now she's totally a daddy's girl. Like when I walk in the door, she's like, okay, whatever. When dad walks in the door, her day is made. So Daisy and Alfie are, they're definitely part of the family. We, we wouldn't trade them come what may. That is wonderful. So, um, you know, like I said, I also grew up in the church and, you know, we are taught about grace, constantly about grace. And, but then there's all these rules, all these rules and a lot of rules that other people think that other people should follow, but they don't. (laughs) You know what I mean? They think everybody should follow these rules, but if you look, they're not following them. No. No, I, for me, I grew up in a very legalistic church culture. It was a lot of, it was a lot of only the King James Bible. I was not allowed to touch any other version because, you know, forget the history of the King James Bible and why it was written because it was not to glorify God. It was a political stunt, but for some reason, like it was KJV words do or die. Um, I wasn't allowed to listen to any sort of contemporary music. If it wasn't like an 1800s hymnal, I was told it was sinful, And then there was a lot of things that I noticed where women had a lot of rules that men didn't. And it took me a while to notice. I was like, so I have a dress code. I almost have a makeup code and a hair code. And they don't. Um, During things like conference calls where they would discuss where the money in the church was going, which I think is a very healthy thing. Men could speak, women could not. If a woman had a problem or a question about the finances, which I typically did, I either had to be quiet or I had to ask a male to ask the question for me. And so I grew up with all of these rules that God is good and God is grace and God is love, but I also grew up silenced. 
Like I, I grew up understanding that my role was to sit down and be quiet. And, and that was it. And, and of course that wasn't God. That was the way man had created almost a sense of control, but it was so unfulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you live your life now in, in light of that? Like, are you going to a church now that still is like that? Or how are you living your life? You know, I'll be honest. Uh, my husband and I go to a church where the pianist has black fingernail polish. Like, it's just like, a, it's a very, I, I go to church because I, I want to find a community where, where God is so good and he is so real that you just feel love when you walk in. And it's not to say there shouldn't be conviction and you shouldn't preach truth because you absolutely, that is love is showing people truth. But in such a way that the first thing I think when I see a person is, hey, I'm here to worship with them, not, hey, how many inches above your knee is that skirt? Why do you have on that outfit? You know, like mm-hmm. my husband's family grew up uh, Roman Catholic. So lots of rules, lots of rules, lots of rules. I grew up Southern Baptist, lots of rules, lots of rules. So when we, we got married, we were like, we're just going to go non-denominational. So we just <laughs> went in the middle um, and we have a wonderful church home where um, again, I think there's beauty to modesty and there's beauty to, to understanding which version of the Bible you're reading. I'm not negating that, but that's not the pinnacle of your faith. Your pinnacle is the gospel and, and it's not rules. And that's what we looked for. And, and that's why, that's why for the first time in my life, I finally enjoyed going to church. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And when we were talking earlier about, um, you know, finding grace, especially when you were going through that time where your husband was gone and, um, you know, you, you became very vulnerable, Yeah, you became very vulnerable. Do you want to talk about that and kind of the feelings you were going through? Oh yeah. It was, it was such a hard season that, you know, like I said, I could smile on cue. I knew what to say, when to say it, but when your brain is so loud, particularly like me, when you have an undiagnosed mental problem. Like the brain is just in a space where you can't process what you're saying sometimes. And either like, even how you're presenting yourself. I know while my husband, Josh was away during that three to four month period, I went to coffee with a very good friend of mine. I hadn't even sat down and she said, Hey, what's wrong with you? You're not okay. Like you've lost 10 pounds. And I just saw you three weeks ago. You, I don't know if you know it, but you're shaking. Like your hands are shaking. You can't even hold your coffee something is wrong with you. And, and I think it took people loving me enough to step in and say, you're not okay. For me to say, okay, not only is perfection impossible, but even the front of perfection is impossible now. Like you've reached a point where you can't even pretend temporarily and retreat home. And I pushed off the idea of therapy for years. I was one of those people where I thought, no, 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 I am strong. Like I'm strong enough to get through this. I am fine. And next thing you know, during that season, I end up on a, on a couch in a therapist office, drinking green tea and just spilling my guts to this woman. Um, and I was quickly diagnosed. I wasn't 10 minutes into my first session with her. I was diagnosed with OCD very quickly. Um, also diagnosed with some secondary PTSD. My father served in the military for 24 years. And so he went through a lot. So our family went through a lot. Um, but I think going to therapy and there finally being a name for the exhaustion I was always feeling internally, that was a breath of relief. And so eventually I became so comfortable and so at peace with the therapy I was receiving that I kind of wanted to turn around and make that a gateway for other people 
it had been so helpful for me, but so stigmatized that I, I began saying, okay, if I can break the stigma, people might go get help. And this peace and this help I'm receiving, that's something that they now have access to. And I've, I've found so much joy in that. And that's really, I see a Christian counselor. It's really paved the way for me to see God in, in such a, a softer light. Again, he's still God, he's still judge, but I can finally see the loving side of him that I wasn't even sure existed. So vulnerability for me has been access to a real faith. It's been an access to a real community and real friendships I hadn't had until I was this vulnerable with myself and others. Where did you find your friendships as you were going through this? Oh, I, my husband is, he's just a wonderful dude. I, I tend to be more of an introvert and I really was before my mental health diagnosis. Cause I just, I was always processing things, always internalizing things. I was too exhausted to go find friends. I just didn't want to do it. He, he networked for me, almost like speed dated me with friends. He would come home and say, <laughs> Hey, my boss's wife, she's an author. She loves coffee. She's a Christian. Do y'all want to meet up? Um, I met her and day one, she actually ended up telling me she also was diagnosed with OCD. We actually take the same medication. We do the same therapy treatments. So my husband, I know that sounds wild, but a lot of it is my husband networking for me. I have one or two really good girlfriends from college that I've stuck with and they've stuck with me and they've been super supportive. So a few friends from my past and then one or two friends that my, my husband's been kind enough to make me be a little bit of an extrovert and meet. And it's just been wonderful. Wonderful. And, and you, you're seeing quite comfortable right now on this interview. So well, thank you. Yeah. It's one of those things where my, my mom, when I was little, she still made me as a young child, she made me do my own dental appointments and call the doctor. She said, one day, baby, you're going to have to talk to people. Like that is one skill that will be quite unavoidable for the rest of your life. So so I enjoy it now. I didn't enjoy it as a child, but I'm slowly branching out and becoming a happy extrovert. Wonderful. So just for people who may not know, what is OCD and how does that affect people? Yeah. So most people know of obsessive compulsive disorder, but it's often stereotyped and is often incorrect. So there's this big Assumption that OCD means you have to color coordinate your clothes in your closet. You have to arrange your pins in a certain way. Your house has to be spotless. Like gremlins live in my car. My car is disgusting. Like I don't even like being in my own car. Um, so, so this concept of OCD is just you're a neat freak and you're obsessed with organization. That's not really what it is. There's, there's four types of OCD and the, the symmetry, which is the cleaning and the straightening, the picture frames and the contamination OCD, which is your germaphobe, you're washing your hands. Both of those branches only affect about 2% of people with OCD. So like the, while the stereotype is correct, it's not correct for literally 98% of us. Um, most of us suffer with what's called intrusive thought OCD. And what it means is typically if there was a trauma in your life as a child, or if there's something that you just have a hang up with, like me being a perfectionist, you tend to not be able to shake off the thoughts in your head and they turn into compulsions. So I think one of my favorite examples, and by favorite, I mean not, um, <laughs> I have what's called religious OCD and harm OCD. So I grew up in a very ritualistic church. So the religious OCD is very normal, but harm OCD. So if you're driving down the road and you, you hear something under your car, most people go, oh, I hit a pothole or I ran over some trash. My brain will go, but what if that was a person or what if that was a dog or what? So immediately there's this, what if, what if, what if, 
And with people with OCD, scientifically, what they know is there's a chemical imbalance in your brain and your adrenaline glands. So the, the fight or flight in you does not respond correctly. So rather than just calming down and saying, oh, that was a pothole, you're fine. The adrenaline literally goes into overdrive and you say, oh no, I've, I've got to turn my car around. I've gotten in a car wreck turning my car around because I swore I might've ran a pedestrian off the road or hit a pedestrian. So it's, it's very much, it's obsessive thoughts that are never healthy. And the, the compulsion is the turning around the car. It's the thought becomes so overwhelming that you physically have to, to check the doorknobs or wash your hands or check that you haven't hit somebody on the road. Um, the world health organization has put OCD in the top 10 most debilitating diseases and disorders. So OCD is actually right up under pulmonary, like lung problems, as far as how it literally debilitates each day. So it, it's a tough one is, I mean, I'm honored to, to trudge through it, to turn around and help others, but OCD is a little mongrel. Got it. And you talked about something chemical. So a lot of times when people say chemical, they think, oh, medicine. So is this something like, you know, I mean, we have people they get depressed and they go medicate them, you know? So there's the, that end of the spectrum where it's like, there's people being medicated that don't need to be. And of course there's the other end where people really need to be medicated. Absolutely. So when it comes to OCD, is that one of those that you actually medicate or do you have other tools you use? So there's, there's both. And it depends because with OCD, there literally is mild, moderate, severe. So it, it kind of depends on which zone you're in. For me, mine was moderate when COVID hit, it went severe very quickly because I do. So I also do struggle with contamination OCD. It's not my most, it's not the big, big one, but COVID did turn it into something that was huge. So I was doing what's called brain spotting therapy, which is just, it's an exercise and a tool the therapist uses to kind of track where the thoughts are coming from. And if we can understand where they're coming from, we can not avoid triggers, but we can know when something's coming and prep our brains a little better. So I did lots of natural, um, I'm very big on herbs. There's lots of anxiety reducing herbs and vitamins you can take, but with COVID it got to a point where that was not, that was not maximizing treatment. And so I ended up on medication and I take Zoloft every morning and it, it does wonders for me. It doesn't make it go away. OCD has no cure right now. They, they do know that much but it allows my brain to slow down just enough where I can't actually say, Hey, Peyton, that's, that was a pothole. You're, you're okay. You can keep driving down the road. So I'm, I'm very much pro medication. I, I, I fought it for a long time because I, I carried some shame with it. I thought that meant I really wasn't handling things. Okay. But I love medication. Now I think it's a perfect blend with my therapy. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And through all this, you were talking about your husband networking and bringing friends in. Um, how did this affect your relationship and how, how did your husband interact with you and how did you interact with him through all this? The beginning of our marriage before I was diagnosed, it was very tense. There, there, were lo- there was lots of arguing mainly brought on by me because again, I had all this pinned up anger and frustration because I was, I knew something was wrong, but because OCD is so stereotyped, I didn't know it was, I had no clue I had OCD. I just knew something perfection wasn't working. The thoughts in my head were not perfect. And I'm just bottling all this anger up. So the first year, year and a half was hard. Um, but as, as terrible or as strange as it sounds, getting diagnosed was wonderful for our marriage because I could go, 
oh, now we can work on this. I don't have to live pinned up. And my husband literally said, he went, okay, it's OCD. It's not my wife. Like I I knew for, he said, I knew the whole time this was not Peyton. Like this was not my wife, but I didn't know what it was. So the second we could both name it, I could now work on it and he can now support me. And so therapy and getting officially diagnosed was a 180 for my marriage. Beautiful, beautiful. So, and now um, you said you, you're working from home. Um, What are you doing from home? So, you know, authors, we're broke. So like most of us are not blessed enough to just write books for a living. So um, I, I am an author. I love to freelance write for magazines, but I am a content creator, a digital content creator for an international law firm. So I do lots of um, legal writing. So I definitely have more of the creative brain in the writing world, but I love the challenge of, of a different form of writing. And I told my husband, I'm at the point where I'm thinking about taking the LSAT and just seeing at this point if I could get into law school, just from all the writing I've done for the law firm. So it's been a blast and they're a wonderful company to work with. Right. Wonderful. So let's um, talk about your book. Yeah. So not so by myself is my story of mental health and letting go of perfection. And I, I started writing it when my husband came home from that three or four months that he'd been gone. Cause I'd, I'd learned so much while he was gone. I'd learned so much about me my mental health about God. And it, it was funny. Cause I started writing the book three weeks before COVID hit. And the, you know, I would just been through a hard season of loneliness and now everybody on the planet was, was lonely to some capacity. And so it was a a bittersweet marketing pitch. Uh, My publisher wanted the book turned around very quickly because in a sense, we were wanting to beat the pandemic ending because it, you know, that sounds terrible, but it was one of those things where now the whole world could relate to my story of loneliness to some degree. Mm -hmm. So we turned it around. It was a very quick process, getting it to the printing press, getting it ready for Amazon, Um, but it's been fantastic. I've had wonderful people support the book. I've had lot, I think my favorite, I've had lots of messages from people I don't know who found me on social media, but they've said, Hey, because of you, I finally went to therapy and it turns out I have OCD. Hey, because of you, I've been fighting taking medicine because I just felt like it, it meant that I was a failure, but now I take Prozac. Now I take Zoloft. Now I, I take Effexor and I can tell a difference. And that's been the best part of the book. Writing the book was very stressful given the tight deadline I was given. Um, being vulnerable is hard when you know anybody on Amazon can just literally read into your soul. Uh, but seeing the return on that and knowing that it's, it's I, I did end up being that friend, like my friend who just told me she had OCD and spilled her guts to me and made me feel like I wasn't by myself. Now I can be that for anybody who has access to the internet. So that is a blessing. Beautiful. So now that we're talking about the book, why don't you tell people how can they contact you or get a hold of you and also where to find the book? Is it just on Amazon? Is it other places? So it's on Amazon, but you can also order it off my author website, which is just PeytonGarland.me. So it's super easy to get to. And my website is also where my blog is. So I do a, a regular blog. I also have OCD merchandise I've created. I have not today compulsions and I, you know, I have contamination OCD and survive COVID. I have all kinds of fun t-shirts and OCD merch. Um, and I also have a contact button and I love to tell people it, it's, it's for people who want to inquire about me speaking or, or hosting an event. But also if anyone's read my book or they have questions about my book, 
reach out to me there because I love to hop on Zoom calls with hot tea or coffee and just talk to people and listen to their stories. So I'm definitely always available for those kind of chats from anybody. Great. Well, thank you so much. And just a personal question at this point in your life, what gives you the most happiness and fulfillment? Oh, oh, that's a deep one, but it's so good. I think every night when, when I'm, I go to bed years ago before my OCD was diagnosed and treated bedtime was a nightmare for me. Cause I was replaying how I dropped the ball that day or, or what I wasn't, or was God mad at me? Did I pray enough after I did X, Y, or Z? But going to bed now at night and resting peacefully, knowing that my, my past and my present and my future are covered in grace and, and do not require perfection. That is my fulfillment is just finally after 25 years resting. That's awesome. I've got chills as you're saying that. That's just awesome. And, and what, you know, every person wants peace. Every single person on the planet yeah. wants to have that peaceful feeling and feel like they're in peace. Yeah. So that is just so beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for sharing your soul and your heart. Yeah. I was honored to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I have one last question before we complete. What is your best advice on living an incredible, amazing life? I think at the end of the day, we, we don't want to give ourselves grace because I think it, it, we feel like we're giving ourselves a cushion or a fallback or an excuse, but I challenge people to give themselves grace because when they do, they'll find unintentionally, they're giving other people more grace too. And it just creates community where people can respect and love people because we're people. And, and there's, there's so much joy in that, especially, especially in the COVID political tense time we live in to be able to look at another human and just know that they're a human and love them for it. That's a breath of relief. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Peyton. Absolutely. Thank you. Yep. And we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds wonderful.